as you said, winter is not my first business. So the first startup capital was my own money. I was my own VC using the profits of my other company, CXL, to hire people to fund the development of the MVP, all that stuff. Then I thought I'm going to raise VC money, but they didn't see it. So I was unable to raise money. Cape Laya is an expert at bootstrapping companies. He started by turning his in-house marketing experience into an agency. He used the profits from his agency to bootstrap an e-learning business. And then he took the profits from his e-learning business to bootstrap a SaaS company. I'm very excited to have Pape share his journey with us today on Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Pape has founded three successful companies. After his first startup idea failed, he founded CXL as a conversion optimization agency in 2011. The agency eventually rebranded as Spiro, and the CXL brand was spun off as a marketing training company that now has hundreds of courses and certifications for marketers. Pape served as CXL CEO for 12 years. In 2020, Pape founded Winter, a platform that lets you test your B2B messaging with your target audience and has grown it to over $2 million in annual revenue. In today's show, Pape and I discussed the founding stories behind his three successful companies, advice for company positioning and messaging, why he moves up market as fast as possible, Winter's growth and marketing strategy, and why he's still a big believer in events. It's an awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. So let's start with your decision to create CXL. I believe CXL was initially a blog around conversion optimization. Can you talk about the origin story? I had just shut down a startup that failed. You know, I had a bootstrap startup. To try to grow for two years, ran out of ideas how to change its luck. Basically, it was a zombie company, you know, not quite dead, but not quite alive either. So killed it. It's like, okay, how do I make money? Like, okay, I was already, you know, earning income as a, like a marketing consultant. So built a blog to build an audience. That was my intention, to build an audience email list. So I would create say, a legion funnel for my services. And then uh, it started working quite fast. This was 2011, you know. Uh, LinkedIn was nothing. Uh, so it was all about blogging. So I blogged like my life depended on it. And uh, over even one year, developed a significant audience, uh, significant enough to, uh, so I could hire uh, a designer, a developer, and a project manager, and like start a little agency. Was that always your intention to start an agency? Like, did you start the blog with the intention, okay, I'm going to build an audience and I'm going to spin this off into an agency? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as I said, I was already like a freelance marketing consultant, but I was good at my craft. I didn't want to do the deadlines and stuff. So I needed a project manager and, uh, you know, you always need design and development. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to just be the face and then these guys will do the behind the scenes work and it will be easy. I mean, nothing is ever easy. So the easy part didn't work out. The agency did. And so what does a conversion optimization agency actually look like? I assume you're helping people craft their landing pages and get button copyright and messaging. Like, I don't know what it's mm -hmm. sort of the day-to-day -day projects usually look like. So of course, what the agency is today, today it's called Spiro. It's still around. It's doing great. Today, Spiro is very different from what it was when I started it. When I started it, it the premise was like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll make your website convert better. So basically, we took your WordPress website, changed the design, changed the copy, changed some UX flows, made it easier, you know, lowered friction to take action and tried to increase motivation to take action. And it was project-based and it, we were targeting SMBs because that was our audience. And we were very cheap. You know, I think we were start, uh, charging just for optimizations like 400 bucks a month. And redesigns were like maybe 3,000, 4,000, you know, like peanuts, nothing. Today, you know, it's like 20K a month deals. So over time, we went up market because what we learned is that big companies, small companies, the amount of work that goes in is the same, except if you increase your sales by 5%. A small company that makes, you know, a million dollars a year, they're like, Dude, you ripped me off. Fuck you. A big company that makes 100 million years. Like, oh my God, 5%? Woohoo, Ferraris. You know? 
So they're very happy with you and they're not negotiating over the fees. You know? so, so over time we went up market and of course our own understanding about what business we're in changed, went from increasing just the conversion rate metric to building experimentation programs in large enterprises. The ICP point you make there is so interesting and important. It's something I'm thinking a lot about at Doc because we have a lot of really small businesses sign up who use it, but they demand a lot of support and stuff. And when yeah. we, when you when you share pricing with them, they're like, "Oh my god, this is so expensive!" But then you yeah. go talk to mid market enterprise companies; they don't even blink at the cost, right? And so, and it's the same work, right? Maybe exactly. even more work. <laughs> and in SMBs, typically the the boss is the founder, who often considers cost be their own money. It's like they treat it as it's their personal money and they feel like you're robbing them. Whereas if it's a meat market company, it's virtual money, right? It's like line item in a, in a spreadsheet, you know, it's, you know, there's no emotional attachment. So it's easier yeah. to spend. Yeah, way less personal. That's a really interesting way way to put it. And I do feel like that even as I spend my own money at Doc. It's like each dollar is just like a little less of my runway and a little less of my future and it better mm-hmm. go to someplace the, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. So anybody who is in services businesses, uh, especially, my advice is always just do not work with small businesses. Go up market as fast as you can. And of course, as fast as you can is not like two months. It will take years. It will take years. But like start making progress that way. Also, if you have never worked with large businesses, you know, there's a learning curve, how to pitch them, how to service them, what they need, what they want, how they think, you know, so it's very different. Yeah. Then you gotta start dealing with procurement and I gotta do stuff oh, yeah. too and all that fun stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Running agencies is a pretty hard business, right? You always either have too many people and not enough clients or too many clients and not enough people. Like, how did you sort of think about building, yeah, like this Mm -hmm. agency side of the business and kind of that constant problem? It is a low margin business, you know, like 20% is is excellent margin in services. Uh, The best of the best have 30%. I mean, I'm not a spreadsheet, very, you know, analytical type of guy. I'm more like a big picture, let's sell and market hard. So I kind of winged it, uh, which is, I think, how a lot of entrepreneurs tend to do it. Uh, well, it depends on your strengths. Like I'm not a you know spreadsheet guy. So the revenue was going up. So I was like, yeah, hey, this is working. Let's do more of this. And for us, it was what was working was just content marketing. And we were getting more leads. Oh, if we can't take on more clients because we have no, essentially still selling time, no matter how you charge for it, we need to hire more people. Today, of course, the agency, uh, which is now 12 years old, is much more mature about this stuff. But still, these constraints happen. Like, we know that in our pipeline, we have, let's say, seven hot deals. Okay, to appropriately service them, we don't have enough people. So we need to start hiring now in advance, even though we haven't maybe signed these contracts yet. And maybe they will fall through in the last minute. And then we have overhired. You know, it's tricky. And then eventually you built kind of an e-learning business on top of the agency. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, as you said, like the agency is now Spiro and still alive and kicking and doing really well. Mm-hmm. But like, and I think the the e-learning is still called CXL, right? right? And so why did you kind of decide to go build an e-learning business on top of the agency? Mm-hmm. So why build another business on top uh, has had two reasons. One was the personal reason and one was just obvious business reason. The obvious business reason was that as our blog, which was like a lead gen mechanism, grew more popular, you know, getting like 300,000 visits a month, email list of more than 100,000 people. And this is like around 2016. Most email list of 100,000 people, 99 point something percent of people would never be able to afford us because back then we were already like 15K a month retainers. So it's like, okay, so we have all this audience that we're just not monetizing. And so we ran a survey, essentially asking them, hey, what else would you want to buy from us if we were smart enough to sell it to you? And essentially, they say like courses, ebooks, things like that. So basically, teach them to to do what we would do for them. And I ran a pilot. Uh, The pilot was, I ran like a coaching program. So I didn't pre-create content because that's a lot of work. So it was like live Zoom classes. I mean, like before the Zoom class, I kind of like prep what I'm going to show. It was a screen share. And of course, I knew my shit. So it was easy. So I was just figuring out, I'm going to teach you this and this. And I ran maybe two cohorts of this, made like half a million bucks. I was like, okay, there's a business here. People are ready to pay money. Uh, and I think I charged 2000 
per person for like a 12 week program. So that's, that was like, okay, there are people who are ready to pay for it. And they're not just saying they're actually paying for it, you know, so tested that. And the, the second reason was that I just personally got tired of being a consultant. I was the founder of the agency. I was the, the face. I was the lead consultant. Most customers uh, requested to work with me, you know, in particular. And I think being a consultant comes with an expiry date. I got tired of explaining the same shit over and over and over and over again. So I was looking for what else can I do if I'm not a consultant anymore? So then this e-learning opportunity just came about, validated it. It's like, okay, this is legs. And did it require like, I don't know, a cash investment at all? Like, did you use the agency cash flow to fund it? Or you, I guess you kind of ran that test, got some money, and then that started kicking it off. But I mean, I guess it's just creating content online. So it's just packaging in a different way. How did you think about kind of the, the finances of, of spending Yeah, so business? the agency was profitable. So we were making, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars of profit every year. I don't remember the exact amounts, but, you know, we had some hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank account just sitting there. And, you know, I had read about many agencies who were like, oh, yeah, one day we'll build a SaaS company, you know, like Basecamp. Uh, but like 99% of them never get to it. Why? Because they're always busy with plan work. So it's like, okay, so I, I identified the necessary ingredients to start a, you know, a side business, basically, is that you need top leadership attention. So basically the founder starts pushing the new initiative and a higher brand new set of people to work on this new initiative. So nobody's like, I do four hours of client work and four hours of this new stuff. It just doesn't work. Split the tension. And so we had budgeted that we need, we have about maybe, I think we had like nine months of runway to get to break even. With, so I hired, I think, five people, if I remember correctly, plus myself as, as the founding team of this e-learning thing. And it took us five months to build the platform and the initial content and all that stuff. And then we launched and the results were underwhelming. It was like very low uh, revenue. I think it was like we made less than 10,000 a month. Our uh, expenses were higher. So it was like every month we, we lost money. And then, but we, we were also agile with customer research and looking at like who's churning and who's not churning and like what's the difference between these two groups. And we learned the smaller the business, the faster they churned. And the bigger the business, the, the better the retention. It was like, okay. So we need to go for bigger businesses. Uh, so we increased our prices, changed our messaging. We're like for bigger businesses, not the you know one-man companies. Changed some other stuff. One month before running out of money, we, we got, got to break even. It's a great story. And so I imagine it's like a marketing team or somebody like at the big company is buying the e-learning for their team, right? Like a CMO is like, hey, my team needs to get better at this topic area or that. Is that generally kind of how, who you sold to and how it works? Exactly right. Marketing leaders, actually, the number one buyer was an agency, marketing agency. So they have a marketing agencies are people heavy. And to cut down on costs, they usually hire young people cost less young people don't know that much so courses is a great way to you know upskill them fast basically so it was a good match with that audience how did you scale the content over time because i assume you weren't the one just making <laughs> all of these videos or, or maybe i assume you did the, the bulk of the ones at the beginning but then how did you sort of i don't know recruit other people to create videos yeah. and what did that sort of creator side look like so at, at, in the beginning it was just me and you know i only know so much so after a while, I was like, well, I have nothing else to teach. And we, we sold subscription access. And a common reason for canceling was, I already went through all the content. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. That it should be like Netflix. You can never watch everything, right? It's like, okay, it needs to scale beyond me. And so I knew other experts in the business because, you know, if you're a consultant, you go to conferences, you meet everybody. And so one by one started recruiting my personal industry friends. And at first we did revenue share. So we'll give you, I forget the exact percentages, but uh, we'll give you a, a significant cut, like maybe 40% of your course sales. We overpaid a lot. So, I mean, some of these early instructors made a lot of money. And then we learned, okay, we're paying too much. How about we, we change to a fixed fee model? And so, so we did. So we started approaching people hey, we pay you this much money, would you produce a course with us? And they said, yes. I was like, woo, it's working. 
And so, as, you know, for the first two years, I think we, we just ran through my personal Rolodex until all, all my friends had been instructors. And then after that, it was like, okay, we just need to go by topic. Let's say it's a LinkedIn ads course we want to produce. Who is the best in the world at LinkedIn ads? Built a short list of some five to 10 people and just approached them like, hey, are you interested in this much money? And I assume there's a great flywheel there too, because each person you recruit, they probably promote their own course on their social media and stuff, and then bring in you know their audience to come check out the course. Is that a little bit how it worked? Well, actually, this was our hypothesis, but proved not to be the case. Hmm. In fact, what, what often ha- happened was that they, they taught the course with us, then they had put in the work to build a curriculum, and they just re-recorded the same curriculum on their own and put it on their website. And so kind of competing with us. So these days, I think the, the policy is actually not to work with consultants anymore, uh, but in-house people, because in-house people, they're usually, you know, um, you know, employees, not entrepreneurs, whereas consultants are typically entrepreneurs. And so they're not going to go and build their own course to sell as a side hustle, whereas like the agency people, absolutely they will. It's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, there's so many, so many courses, so many people doing things right. on, on LinkedIn now. It's, it's pretty crazy what it's, yeah. what it's turned into. Yeah. All right. Let's switch gears and start talking about winter. So you spent like the last three years working on winter. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about kind of the founding story of winter? How'd you come up with the idea? As I said in the beginning, I had, I had a failed SaaS business in my past and it was kind of like a itch and always thought that uh, doing a, a SaaS business would be fun, but it always seemed like every business had already been done a thousand times. Like, And I had no original ideas for what to do. And then one day, as we were again launching a new course at CXL uh, and, writing a, and I was writing the sales copy for the pitch, and then I wasn't sure if it's good. And I was like, I wonder if my ideal customer reads this. Are they like interested? Are they turned off? Or what's good? What's not good? There's got to be a tool out there that will tell me. Like I can put it in front of my ICPs and they will tell me what's good about it. And I found nothing. And all I found was other people with the exact same problem. And then I was like, woohoo, is there an unsolved problem I just stumbled upon? Uh, and that was kind of the genesis of it. Once learning that it, it truly is an unsolved problem, you know, you want to validate whether it's truly is a pro- really is a problem. You want to validate the problem, and then you want to validate your idea for a solution. Because also, even though I knew what the problem is, how to solve this was not obvious. We had many conflicting different hypothesis ideas. We thought Amazon Mechanical Turk. You know, uh, if you know how it works, it's basically you can give people tasks and you pay them money uh, per uh, response. And so we built the first model, feedback model using Amazon Mechanical Turk, like a consumer panels. And then we built um, prototypes, you know, basic Figma prototypes. And then we did 30 interviews. I shouted on LinkedIn and Twitter, hey, who is, uh, you know, writing copy, but unsure if it's any good? Uh, raise your hand. Uh, I want to talk to you. And so landed about 30 interviews where basically probed, you know, investigated if they have a problem with validating how good their copy is. It seemed that, yes, it has legs. And then we show them our prototypes, got their feedback, how they want it to work. Would this solution work for them? You know, And identified quickly solid trends of uh, like themes of how people would want it to work. And then we got to work. Uh, hired a, a de- one single developer and started building it, uh, like the first, first iteration. And then how has sort of the idea evolved from those initial customer development interviews? And you mentioned this idea of like panels, right? Because like my understanding of winter, yeah, there's like a group of people, right? Who actually go look at the messaging who are in your ICP. Can you kind of paint a picture of what the platform actually does for folks? Totally. Well, building the whole system probably took like a year off before we opened anything to the public. It was like a year of building, iterating, during which we deleted everything and rewrote everything from scratch once again, because the first developer we hired was actually incompetent. And we only found out later. Yeah. And so it was all based on Amazon Mechanical Turk audiences that we could pre-survey them about like, hey, do you like to drink coffee, do fitness? Uh, are you into uh, you know uh, crypto or are you a SaaS marketer? And this way we filtered out who are the fitness people and who are like women and who, are, who like to travel and who are, you know, and so we had all these 
consumer audiences. So like travel companies wanting to travel people and fitness companies wanting to fitness people. And we went to market uh, May of 2020 as our first iteration. We were called copy testing. And it was, even though the sign-up interest was high, I think we got more than a thousand users, you know, within a week uh, signing up, signing up was free. Uh, the stickiness and then from free to paid conversion was very low and more customer interviews. And then we, we, our hypothesis was that our buyers are copywriters and B2C or e-commerce product uh, managers, uh, product, ma- product marketing managers, basically people responsible for the product pages on e-commerce. What we learned was that copywriters hated us because they had been getting away with writing whatever copy they wanted for you know since the beginning of times, and there was no criticism besides your opinion, you know. So they they wanted to keep it that way. And second was e-commerce product page owners. They never thought about copy like the copy that they wrote and put it out there. It never changes. They they never tweak it. They they make zero changes for the, and I'm generalizing here, obviously. Uh, so the, your average average e-commerce site never changes a, a single word on the product, and that was a problem. And so our hypothesis about who the target audience is were, were wrong. And then immediately we started getting questions: Hey, I'm targeting finance managers. Do you have them? Or I'm targeting uh, B2B SaaS marketers. I'm targeting uh, cybersecurity people. I'm like, no. But do you want moms between ages of twenty and forty? We have those. And then we tried to do, uh, so, okay, instead of Amazon Mechanical Turk, can we use another, like a panel company to source this B2B audiences? And there are like a lot of them out there, Lucid, Sint, you know, it's, it's like a saturated market, commoditized. But we, we discovered that it's full of fraud. One customer required a marketing, B2B marketing audience, and it was like a SEO for organic traffic was our customer. So B2B marketing leaders, we're looking at the copy and writing feedback. And the feedback they wrote was, what does organic food have to do with traffic on the street? Meaning these ideas of organic traffic, like this, they didn't even know what it is. I mean, these were no B2B yeah, marketers. not a real marketer. <laughs> no, no, no. And then it turned out that this, like, it's, uh, this panel fraud is, is just rampant in all these panel companies. It's like 17-year-old dudes from India signing up and saying, yes, I'm a SaaS CMO. You know, and nobody checks, nobody verifies. So it's like self-reported identities. And then it's like, okay, everybody sucks. Can we do it on our own? Can we do our own B2B audiences panels? We ran some uh, first experiments, recruiting first people from our own newsletter, verifying who they are on LinkedIn and you know, all that stuff. And ran very small scale tests. It's like, hey, uh, you, you dude who wanted finance managers. Now we have like, we have 10 finance managers. You want them? And then we did the test and suddenly our average customer happiness went from like three to 10. I was like, whoa, holy shit. Now they like it because always our results that they got from us were like, eh, you know, and so this B2B audience is the feedback was extremely high quality. And then, you know, we did more validation, more small scale tests and everything was no code. We used like Typeform and Webflow and like we didn't write a single line of code to test any of this and uh, found that it's we have identified a model that works. Now it's just how can we, you know, scale it and grow it and do it on a larger scale. And so we rebranded our company from copy testing to winter, focused on B2B. Uh, so that was three years ago. Yeah, It's such an amazing story of kind of going through the idea maze and trying to figure out, okay, you know, what's actually, what's the product? What's the audience? Who's this, who am I building for? All of that. And I mean, and you landed on a solution that makes a ton of sense to me as a, a, a B2B marketer where it's like, I have spent so much time staring at website copy and tr- and wondering whether it's the right you know message or not mm-hmm. and like my team jokes like I change our homepage all the time mm-hmm. you know because it's like one feeling I have one conversation I had preparing for this interview I literally updated our homepage copy because I'm I was way, like man. thinking I'm about exactly it. Yeah. the same way mm-hmm. and it's so hard to figure out like what is right and then the problem with B2B too is like I don't have enough traffic to actually run A-B tests. Yep. And so it's like this more meta thing of like, how am I explaining the overall company? Mm-hmm. And is sales going up when I explain it in this way? Because I think of it as the messaging also connects back to like the product itself and what are we totally. actually offering to people and all that. And so, yeah, I don't know, it's a hard yeah, puzzle. And I also find that, you know, like when you're building a business, you have two things. You have like 
can you come up with a value proposition that people want? Like, if you can deliver this, here's money. And then it's like building the actual product. And I find that the value proposition side, finding what the market is ready to pay for is the harder piece. Because it's rare to come up with an offer that's like, people are like, yes, take my money. And if you find one of those, then the rest of your business is like figuring out how to actually deliver on it. That's your moat and, you know, the secret sauce and all that stuff. But it starts with the value prop. And the value prop, of course, it relies on your original insight and ideas and, you know, experience and all that stuff. But it's also the words then. How do you communicate it? If you communicate it this way, will they want it? So the, the, the words are, you know, extremely powerful and important. One thing I always go back and forth on is like, do I communicate the what? Like, what does this product actually do? Like for Doc, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, a customer workspace that helps you with sales order forms and organizing content versus the why, which is like, we'll close more deals. We'll help you accelerate time to value, like the outcome based, you know, messaging. Mm-hmm. And like, I know like the outcome based messaging is where how you actually win a deal, right? You're solving a real customer pain point. But it just feels so vague sometimes, you know, and like every other website has it. So that's a hard balance. I don't know. Yeah, how you yeah, think yeah. Because people, when they're shopping, they're not shopping f- for an outcome. They're shopping for a specific what. What is it? Because they have an idea that the what solves their pain or whatever desired gain. Uh, so, yes, you know, on the website, you balance both. Uh, but like the what, what is it, I think is more important because when they land to your website, ideally it's not their first contact with you. They've seen you on LinkedIn, they've seen your ads or, you know, however, so you speak at a conference. So ideally the, the why, the narrative, the story, they've already familiar with it. They've been exposed to it somehow. Maybe they joined your newsletter and get a weekly newsletter. So they follow you on LinkedIn and then they see you, you know, every week talking about, you know, something, a bigger narrative. And then they get to the website, then they, they already know the why now. And so it's like, they only need to connect the dots that the scent needs to be there. Ah, oh, this is what I saw on LinkedIn. It's like reflected here in, in a short, concise way. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And if you go with the why, it can be the, the outcome and the why can be the same for many different companies, right? Every sales tool is probably going to help you close deals faster and impress your customers and whatever it is. Exactly. So anytime, like I see this message testing data all the time where people just make this kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, the, increase the velocity of your deals and close deals faster. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, but how do you do it? How do you, they want the specifics. And so many companies omit the specifics. They say, no, get a demo and then we'll tell you. No, they're not going to get a demo. Like time is precious. People don't want to get demos. Uh, and so you need a lot of like, this is how exactly we do it. And then screenshots and interactive demos and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. The other tricky thing I think about too is like how your messaging evolves depending on the stage of company. Cause like, you know, at a seed stage company, you probably have one product, one core use case. And it's easier to describe the what versus like SAP, you know, to use an extreme example, like they have a thousand what's, they have a thousand things. And so they have to be super broad or even lattice, you know, much more reasonable example. And so you look at these, you know, bigger grown up companies and it's Mm -hmm. like, they're actually the worst ones to get messaging from because it's so obscure and, you know, people already understand the what. I don't know. It's hard to balance. I mean, if you go to salesforce.com, I haven't been there for a long time, but I bet they are not saying what they are and who's the ICP. Like it's probably some Dreamforce or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. promoting a conference or some shit. So, but every big tool like that started as a point solution. I mean, sure, there have been companies that have tried to start as a platform. Most of these have failed because it was just trying to be too many things to too many people at once. And it's hard for a company to stand for more than one idea unless you do it slowly over time, you expand. Uh, but there's a hook somehow, you know, like Salesforce was like just cloud-based CRM, right? That's it. Uh, it was a very simple idea at first. The same with us with winter. Like it was my vision for where it will go has always been up here. It has been so tempting to already talk about the future that I'm seeing. We're going to be this great. Where, even though the product is here right now, you know? Um, and so, but, uh, you know, so I intentionally positioned us from the get go as a point solution for B2B message testing, even though the vision is much, much bigger. 
only now, three years being in the market, we are now starting to reposition ourselves to uh, go from being a point solution to a, a slightly bigger platform because we've developed more use cases. Even the, the type of buyer is different. So typically we sold the product marketing, but now we have use cases that are more uh, suitable for demand gen, even sales. And as you expand those use cases over time and whether it applies to winter or other companies, like how do you think about the relationship between the homepage positioning and messaging versus like all of the product and solution pages? Like, cause you can get away with like slightly different messaging, right? Like that's the reason why you create mm-hmm. those other pages. Yeah. How do you think about kind of that, that web of, of website messaging? Yeah. You still need a concise and compelling way to sum it up. You know, there needs to be unifying thread. Which is why, you know, like in terms of positioning, you need to pick a frame of market category, frame of reference, you know, so basically what, what category of product you are. And it's tempting to also say things that, um, you know, basically you don't fit into any existing bucket. And so you coin your own terminology, which is good because it's, you know, you're different, but it's bad because people don't get it. So for instance, for us, I've, I've considered like, should we call ourselves a buyer intelligence platform? I was like, yeah, that seems like, you know, nicely groups it together, but you put it in front of somebody, what the fuck is buyer intelligence? It sounds like such jargon buzzword garbage. It's gone, right? Or that's really good. All those tools. I mean, I think any, any (laughs) intelligence category actually sounds pretty stupid. Um, I mean, maybe except business intelligence, which has been around for like 30 years or something, right? But all this revenue intelligence is, I mean, no. But of course, a category name is like a, is like a logo. You fill it with meaning over time. Like, like Nike swoosh wasn't like amazing logo from the get-go, right? It was just a thing. Now there's a meaning behind it. Like they have filled it over time. So also I'm not too hung up on like, the category name, you know, like, like gong and revenue intelligence. Well, now it has a meaning, right? Even though it like at first, when I first saw it, I was like, this is fucking stupid, you know, but now, now it's not so stupid anymore. Cause now it's a real thing, right? It's gong, you know? So I'm, I'm not too worried about what to actually call anything. Uh, cause you know, it's to be expected that it sounds stupid at first. Yeah. And the category, I mean, so much of marketing, like, I don't know, uh, advice is like, go create a category, go create a category, right? Like, uh, that blue ocean strategy book or whatever, and or play bigger, right? Those are, which are all great concepts and ideas, but I found it so much easier to, to go reinvent an existing category, right? Take an existing line on it and take an existing workflow that somebody has and explain how you're going to do it better in a more modern way. And that's like what we did mm-hmm. at Lattice for performance management. That's what we're doing now at Doc. And it's just a much easier path as a, as a marketer and I think business builder. Well, I, you know, context dependent. Uh, so I think some categories are just so saturated that if you're yet another marketing automation, email marketing tool, I think it's very hard to stand out because like you go to G2, there's like 500 of them. I think in that case, you you would benefit from uh, being something different. And of course, you you do need to bring actual innovation too. It cannot be that you're the same, but you just call yourself something else. Uh, that doesn't work. And Blue Ocean, um, you know, is a little different, of course, because Blue Ocean is that you remove some essentials. Uh, that everybody has, and then uh, uh, you you dramatically cut costs because of that, and then you, you lean in on something else, you know. Like, you know, and the book has a lot of examples how you can do that. Um, okay. Probably not going to go into it right now. Uh, and also, category creation. I mean, does, there are conflicting opinions there, where like some people say a category is like CRM. You know, there's a lot of tools that are all CRMs category, or it's a form of radical differentiation. Meaning that uh, you don't, you can be the only one doing what you what you are. You just you, you're a unique type of product. Because right now, winter, for instance, is B two B message testing tool, and there, it's the only one in the whole world. You know, like really, we're the only ones in our category. Is it a category? Well, not by Gartner, but you know, it's like what type of a tool is it? What category of a tool is it? I mean, it's a category B two B message testing. You know. Yeah, one day you'll be you'll be on the Gartner Magic Quadrant leading it, leading it all, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, let's switch gears and talk about winter's growth strategy. Like, how do you think about getting winter kind of into the consideration set for, for B2B buyers? Many different ways. So you use what you have, you know, because, you, you know, I don't have a lot of money. So I was like, okay, got to be clever. Uh, also, my skill set using previous companies is, is always been leading with content. We didn't have a lot of, you know, SEO bank links. And so ranking for competitive terms was re- not really a viable strategy to make money, you know, next month, maybe three years from now. So we haven't focused really on blog and SEO that much. We do have it, but um, so leaned heavily on LinkedIn and Twitter. And also me as a founder, I leaned in that, okay, like people, you know, resonate better with individuals compared to company names. So I'm going to have to become an influential person. Influencer marketing really works, and especially if you're the influencer. In 2019, when we first started toying with the idea of building this company, around then I, I made this decision: okay, I need to go all in with LinkedIn and, and you know build an audience. And I mean, I had some name recognition already before, but it was in a different industry: conversion optimization. So the, in this new world, this product marketing dimension, nobody knew who I was. So basically, it was like building building it from scratch. So that was one. So posting every day, you know, making myself right. So that was one big part of it. And of course, I'm pushing a narrative. Sometimes I'm writing about whatever the fuck, but, you know, mostly it's like building a story of why ICP research and messaging and why it's so important. I find, you know, 365 ways to say the same thing. So the way I think about marketing is like there are two buckets. One, create awareness that you exist, which were new startups is the hardest part. It's like, because most people, most of the market doesn't know you exist. And so differentiation plays a huge role there. Also, it has been extremely beneficial for us to be the only tool that does what we do. The only one. So we, we get a lot of word of mouth in like all the various Slack groups or LinkedIn discussions. Somebody says, hey, how can I test my messaging? And we get 100% of that word of mouth. So it's been really useful to be differentiated. And then it's the stay top of mind part. So if they once find out about us, how are we building mental availability? So they would think about us in buying situations. And so this is just posting daily on LinkedIn and Twitter, sending a weekly email newsletter, throwing multiple o- uh, online virtual events a-, a month, workshops. We do like uh, like you know, type of webinars that we I mean we call them different things, but essentially it's webinars. And we try to do multiple per month, uh, high quality stuff, weekly newsletter I mentioned, and then product-led content. So I do this uh, show, maybe you've seen this, what I call, Do You Even Resonate? that I post on social, which is, I try to make it entertaining, but it's also I'm sh- screen sharing my product. It has been very effective for us. This idea I, I got from Ahrefs, you know, for their blog, um, the way they write blog posts is like, they write, they write an article about a problem, SEO problem people have, and then they show how to solve that problem using their tool. So that was like the original inspiration. Those are the main things we do. That's like 90% of our marketing, I want to say. And then one other part of your marketing that I've noticed was like you you invested in some of these like I guess social commercials, uh, like oh, the yeah. winter best man speech and the proposal ads are hilarious and amazing and do mm-hmm. such a good job explaining your value prop. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, this comes back to the first bucket: the make people aware that we exist. And if you do brand advertising, the brand advertising really uh, needs to answer three questions: What is it? What's it called? And when should I use it? So, marketing literature they call it category entry points. You know, category entry point marketing. So, neuromarketing. You know, it's it's known that the the most effective way to communicate an idea is contrast. I was fat and now I'm skinny. You know, I was poor and now I'm rich. Uh, contrast. So I wanted contrast and I wanted this, uh, you know, what is it? What's it called? And when do I use it? So that that was the idea that we, we, we need video ads that have contrast before and after. Bad messaging, good messaging. But producing video ads, high quality video ads, about 30 seconds long, it's very expensive, especially for startups. So if, if you go to a such a video production agency, so small startups need to be scrappy. So I have a friend who's like a C-list celebrity, not even celebrity, actor in Hollywood. And I said, hey, do you know anybody in Hollywood 
who is looking for a side gig and wants to make commercials. And he's like, yeah, I know the guy. I know a guy. And he's like a struggling musician, dude. And uh, put me in touch with him. And uh, basically, I found that Hollywood is full of this talent, extremely talented people, script writers, actors, you name it, directors that are looking for the big break. You know, 99% never make it, right? They're, they're working at Starbucks and whatever. But they all want to build their resume, their, uh, you know, portfolio. So I found all these people as actors and uh, like the, the the filmmakers basically put t- together a crew and I produced these ads for $10,000, 10 ads for $10,000. So it's $1,000 per video. Uh, so uh, extremely scrappy. And then, yeah, we use these as re- retargeting. Uh, so once they, um, you know, come to our site, we follow them around with ads, uh, build mental availability, uh, train them to think about winter. That's an amazing story. I mean, because, yeah, ads are so, I mean, commercials can be so expensive. I think when I tried to do this stuff at Lattice, 50K was the minimum, probably 100K. Like, yeah. it gets crazy when you go work with a, with agencies. And yeah, I know it's a good story. And the ads are fantastic. Like, they're super high quality. They do they do a great job managing, like, explaining the message and the value prop of winter is really, really well done. I yeah, yeah. We rented an Airbnb. Uh, and basically, everything was shot in that Airbnb, like a front yard, backyard, different rooms. Yeah. Very cool. And then how do you think about events as part of your strategy? I know, you know, you have like the winter games and then spring. Yeah. And then I've, I've seen you post a lot on Twitter about like, I think about how connections are maybe even more important than the content. That's right. Yeah. How do you think about events? So virtual events are just so easy to put on. Everybody should put on virtual events. And you don't want to do your regular webinar stuff. You want to have a more interesting spin on it. So winter games is like, so if, uh, if other companies do online conferences once a year, why can't you do one every month, every week? So that was the premise. And, uh, you know, started doing every month a virtual conference, like 20 speakers. I was like all day th- marathon, like eight hours. Uh, I was always the moderator. So it was extremely tiring actually to, you know, listen with, you know, actually pay attention so you can ask good questions. Uh, so since then, we've cut down the amount of speakers and how long each talk is to like four speakers. Because uh, what we also found out that was or every virtual event, doesn't matter what the speakers are, what the topics are, you have the most viewers, speaker one, and then it just declines slowly. Even if you have the most famous person as the closing keynote, it will have the least amount of viewers. Just guaranteed. And so, but the amount of registrants, whether you have 30 speakers or four, is the same. There really was no point doing longer events. But um, it's, not, it's not called a webinar. So it's, it's a more interesting value proposition. People pay more attention. So, so that's the winter game stuff. Uh, but we also started doing real-world physical conferences. We've done one last year. Uh, actually, this last uh, spring was the first conference. We called it Spring. And why, why do a conference? Well, first of all, at CXL, we did this, uh, we're still doing this conversion optimization conference called CXL Live. So I have a lot of conference organization experience. And what I know is that conferences make you seem bigger than you are. Uh, as, as a smaller startup, credibility is the name of the game. And as, as, as you want to go more upmarket, get bigger budgets, bigger companies to pay attention to you, and some individuals are risking their reputation on buying you, you need to seem more credible. And a conference, still a real, not, not online conference, in-person conference still seems more credible because like the barrier to entry is higher. Not everybody can pull it off. Uh, so you must be a big conference if you're putting on a conference. And in reality, it doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't need to be complicated. It can be very, this particular conference, I organized single-handedly because I, I don't have a small team. It's like, They've never done a conference. I mean, for me, it's easy because really what you need is pick a date, book a venue, make sure there's food and drink, uh, invite some people to speak. And that's it. Right. If I could do this all in, in one day, it would take me two days to organize this conference. Right. Selling tickets is harder, but uh, you can uh, mitigate risks by just avoiding hotels and conference centers because those guys know how to charge money. I rented out a brewery. You know, and they just said, hey, typically on this day, we do this much revenue. This is the food and beverage minimum, uh, which was, I think, 30K or something. If you hit this, you know, everything else is free. 
So I was like, sweet. And I mean, I did it in order to hit this minimum even, I had to, um, I made it uh, all you can drink and eat, including beer, and like unlimited because, and we still didn't hit the, the limit. Uh, yeah. So. No, I love the story in there of like, I don't know, appearing bigger than you are, right? That is such a good thing for all startups to take away from this conversation. It's a lesson I kept applied again and again at Lattice of you can invest into a little bit more into design or conferences and just do things that big companies do. And then, you know, you, you feel like a big company, right? And that's, yeah. and then everyone's always surprised how, how small you actually are. Exactly. Like don't go and buy a booth at Sasser because that's just ridiculous expense, but you can do similar things. But just be smart about how you organize these things. Or you, know, you can throw dinners around big conferences and, and paying for food is not that expensive. Something I was curious about was, does Winter have a sales team? Or is it all product-led growth and people just signing up and paying in the app? Or yeah, how's that working? I have a, uh, a salesperson who's a closer, but the leads are inbound. So everything is coming in inbound. And then uh, it used to be, I used to be the closer. But then once I, you know, often spent most of my days doing demos, it was like, okay, I can't do anything else anymore. Uh, hired a guy, uh, you know, a rookie AE, and I couldn't afford uh, the best AE in the world. And they wouldn't want to work for a small startup either. So what I did was I hired a fractional VP sales. So fractional marketing people, I'm very mm, skeptical about. Uh, my experience is uh, not stellar, but sales, where it's very, you know, you close it or you don't close it. It's very measurable, right? If you do a fraction of VP sales, you get somebody in who has like 15, 20 years of sales closing experience, follow-up experience. They'll close way better than your, you know, 26-year-olds. Way better. Uh, and I, I still use a fraction of VP sales to, as my closer. Um, so that's been working out great. I'd love to end today's conversation talking about, I guess, how do you run a, a bootstrap business? Because you've done this a few times now. And you know it's a complicated formula, right? You're managing cash flow. You still yeah. need to grow. And this is something that everyone is facing, especially today in mm -hmm. today's market. Like, How do you think about you know, kind of managing growth, but then also being profitable as you grow you know, Winter, CXL, all these different businesses? Yeah. As you said, Winter is not my first business. So the first startup capital was my own money. Um, basically, I was my own VC using the profits of my other company, CXL, to hire people, to fund the development of the MVP, all that stuff. That cost was, I want to say, around 500000 at least of my own money uh, putting in to fund the first thing. Then I thought I'm going to raise VC money. But the VCs didn't, they're like, message testing is a new idea also. And so it wasn't obvious for them how big is the TAM. Can this be a venture scale, aka 1 billion plus uh, business? They didn't see it. Um, so I was unable to raise money. And in retrospect, I'm very happy uh, I wasn't able to raise money. Did instead was I did a small angel round. And the angel basically reached out to people that I knew or assumed that have some money because there are laws about asking some people to invest in a business. And the, 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 the rules are that you need to have intimate knowledge that they make at least, I think it's 250K a year, but basically raised 500 something thousand dollars uh, from small checks. You know, some people put $1,000, some 5K, 10K. I think highest check was 50K. All in all, it's like, I think it's 200 different people and they're all as a, I used AngelList RUV as the instrument. So they're all as a single entity on my SPV and my cap table. Uh, and that money, again, paid for some salaries because I hired a team bigger than we could afford cash flow wise. So I hired in advance just to make faster progress, which is also why it would raise VC money, right? To hire people. Uh, so last year, financially, we took a loss because I hired all these people I couldn't afford, but the, the, the angel money paid for it. This year, a third year in business, uh, we broke even in March, and uh, we've been uh, break even or you know slight, slightly ramen profitable uh, ever since. Uh, we're a team of I think sixteen people today. First year in business, we did four hundred fifty thousand uh, in revenue, and last year we did one point two mil, so it was like almost three x growth. And this year. We're on part to do 2.4, so like 2x again. Very cool. And then how do you think about like investing into the growth? Is it just 
you're looking at the goals in the future and then trying to just be really careful to not go over a certain amount of spend each month. Yeah. And I guess it's just a, a simple spreadsheet at the end of the day. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm checking my bank account balance every single day or every other day to make sure, you know, your number one job as a CEO, do not run out of money, right? Do not run out of money. So easiest thing is to hire yourself out of business. You just hire too many people or too expensive people. Once we start making more money, because always the idea is that like we, it's not about cutting costs. I mean, unless you, it's, it's unavoidable, but it's mainly about how can we make more money? So that's what I spend most of my day thinking about. How can we make more money? How does the product need to change? How does marketing need to change? You know, the whole thing, right? If you read strategy books, and I'm a big fan of strategy books, uh, you know, they talk about identifying the crux. And the crux is, so if you set your business strategy, it's not about, oh, I want to make $10 million and then your strategy flows from a goal. No, your strategy flows from identifying the problem and you need to identify the, the right most important problem, uh, really answering the question, what would be the one problem that I could solve that would make everything else much easier, you know? And so that basically tells you which, w- what to prioritize, where to put the most manpower. Because change in priorities also needs to come with change in resource allocation. Otherwise, it's just talk. And so how I'm investing is as soon as I can afford another person, I know exactly where we need to invest. So basically, I'm putting all the money back into uh, hiring. Uh, ad budgets, I'm not in- increasing that much. I mean, I think we're spending 10000 a month or something like this, or uh, maybe a little less. Yeah, and that's the nice part about organic growth too. You know, like a lot of your growth can come from your audience and all the different, yeah. you know, things that you're putting out in social. But uh, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation today. If people want to use Winter, if people want to follow up with you, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, um, LinkedIn, check me out. Right on. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakov. Thank you for listening.